been watching classic Christmas movies this Christmas season? Raise your hand. Honey? Yeah? Yeah? Well, do me a favor. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you a series of pictures, and you let me know if you have watched this movie this year by just raising your hand, okay? Here's the first one. It's a Wonderful Life. Anybody seen that this year yet? All right. Yeah, it's a good one. I like it. Anybody else going to watch it this year? Anybody watch that? Oh, yeah. It's a classic. It's a classic. How about this one here? A Christmas Story. If you haven't, you probably will, right? Do they still play that over and over again? You know, back to back? Yeah, that's a, that's a good one as well. How about White Christmas? Yeah, that's another, another classic Christmas musical there. How about this one here? How the Grinch Stole Christmas. It could be the cartoon or the movie. Yeah, it's another, another good one there. How about A Christmas Carol? It could be any version, any version. That's one of my favorites. I love, the, I love that story of The Christmas Carol, all right? The Polar Express. It's a good one for, for kids, all right? That's another classic. We used to read that story when I was in school. The Santa Claus. Yeah, that's it's one of my favorites. And how about this one here? Elf. Yeah, that's... that's that's super funny. I love that one. All right. You know, there's a lot of great Christmas movies out there, aren't there? We've looked at just a few, but there's, there's many more, right? A lot of, lot of great Christmas stories. Stories about Santa and his elves. Stories about family and friends. Love stories if you watch Hallmark or ABC Family, right? They've got some good cheesy ones on there. Christmas stories about being thankful for what you have and being benevolent with what you've been given. Great stories. And we love a great story, don't we? Especially a great Christmas story. Whether it's a personal story being told by a family member of a Christmas from long ago or, uh, or a, a movie, a classic Christmas movie that we watch every year or maybe a, a classic story that we read like Dickens' Christmas Carol, or Twas the Night Before Christmas. Well, this morning, we're going to talk about the first and greatest Christmas story. And though I know many of you have heard this story over and over again, year after year, so many times that you think there's nothing new you can learn from it, my prayer this morning is this. As I share this Christmas story with you again, my prayer for you is that you would hear it afresh this morning as if you're hearing it for the first time, and that the Spirit of God would, would reveal new truths to you from this great story. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke 2, we are continuing our sermon series through the first part of Luke, entitled Luke's Christmas Story. Today we're going to be looking at the story of Jesus' birth. And there are several things I want you to notice about this story. Notice, number one, the timing of the story. The timing of the story. Look at verses 1 and 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Okay, there are a couple points I want to make here. First, notice the when of these events. Luke tells us 
that these events happened when Caesar Augustus ruled and when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And some of you hear that and you say, okay, why, that, why is that important for me to know? Well, I'll tell you why. Luke is showing us here in these verses that these events happened. They happened. Like we said in the first sermon of our series, this story is a true story. It happened in a real place, in real time, in history. Some, when they hear this story, they lump it in with stories like A Christmas Carol and How the Grinch Stole Christmas and Twas the Night Before Christmas. They view it as a story, as a, as a tall tale, a fairy tale. Listen, no, this, this story, it happened. Luke shows us here that these events involve real people and took place in a real place in real time in human history. Folks, when Jesus' disciples went out in the book of Acts and they went to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and beyond, they did not simply share with people what they believed or what they hoped happened. They shared with people what did happen what they saw with their own eyes, what they heard with their own ears. They reported that the events of Jesus' life, his birth, his death, his resurrection and ascension happened in a real place in real time in history. And that's what Luke is doing here. Notice also that not only did these events happen in real time, but they happened in God's perfect timing, in the fullness of time. We're told by Paul in Galatians 4.4 that Christ came in the fullness of time. Look at what he says here. But when the fullness of time had come, Paul said, God sent forth his son, born of woman. It's the fullness of time. Now here's the thing. Though according to Paul, though according to the word of God, this was the, full, the fullness of time, this is a perfect timing. Historically, this is a rough time for the Israelites. It really was. This was far from being the high point in the nation's history. So why do you think that this is the right time for God? You would think that the fullness of time would have been hundreds of years prior to this event when Israel was one of the greatest kingdoms in the world. At the time of King David and King Solomon, when there was peace on all sides from their enemies. You would think that God would consider this to be the fullness of time for his people, right? At the height of Israel's power and prestige, yet it's not. Instead, Christ comes at one of the lowest points in the nation's history. He comes after Israel had suffered division the northern and southern kingdoms, after they had been defeated by their enemies, taken into captivity time and time again, Jesus came at a time when there wasn't a kingdom of Israel at all. There wasn't even a kingdom. Israel, at this time, was merely a client state of Rome, which meant they were under Roman rule and were subservient to them, and that was not a great situation, was it? putting it lightly, right? The Romans were pagan, polytheistic, immoral, and corrupt people. They were also extremely powerful and were oppressive. It's not a good time to be a Jewish person. Yet God, 
According to Galatians 4, according to Paul in Galatians 4, he viewed this as being the opportune time, the perfect time, the absolute right time to send his son. Why? Get this. Because God is not concerned, nor has he ever been, with displaying and drawing attention to human power and prestige. Instead, God wants to highlight his greatness, his might, his majesty, and he often does it through human weakness. We see that over and over again in the scriptures. Notice here how God displays his power for his people over these Roman rulers. Luke tells us that God has the Roman emperor, who is the most powerful person in the world at this time, he has him and another powerful leader named Quirinius do his bidding. Though they had their own reasons for implementing and and issuing this decree for everyone to be registered, God was ultimately behind it all, as we learn here. And he uses this decree as a means to get Joseph and Mary to the place of Jesus' birth to fulfill his word. Get this, folks. Caesar Augustus, the emperor of the Roman world and Quirinius, the powerful governor of Syria, are mere pawns in the hands of God. Folks, that should comfort you this morning. Listen, God has a plan that he is fulfilling on his terms and on his time. And it's the absolute right time. He has a work that he is accomplishing at the time he is appointed and not even the emperor of Rome stands in the way. Instead, God uses him and others as pawns for his purposes. Listen to Proverbs 21.1. I love this verse of scripture. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Wow. Kings are pawns in the hands of God. How about that? That's what that says. It's what we learn here. He turns them wherever he will, and he uses them however he pleases for his purposes. So we, we, we see here in the first two verses of this Christmas story, the awesome power of God. In the events surrounding Jesus' birth, we clearly see our God reigns. He reigns. He's all-powerful, meaning everything he wills to do, he does. And we also learn that the most powerful men on earth are mere pawns in his hands. Therefore, simple application to be made here, folks. We should not be fearful in this life, should we? We shouldn't. Listen, no matter who's in power... No matter what those in authority do, we are not to be fearful but faithful to the God who truly reigns. Trusting in and being comforted by the fact that he is sovereign, that he is in control. He turns those in power wherever he will. He he uses those however he pleases for his purposes. That's what we learn here. That's the timing of the story here. Now let's talk about the place of the Christmas story, the place of the Christmas story. I'm sure many of you are thinking here, well, we don't need to 
spend too much time on this, right? Because we know this story takes place in the little town of Bethlehem, right? But what I want to do for just a few moments is I, I, want, to, I want to focus on how Joseph and Mary get to Bethlehem and, and why our story takes place here. Look, look again at verses 1 and 2 through verse 5. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So first, notice again that, that God uses these Roman rulers as pawns, and he has them issue this decree, which forces Joseph and Mary to travel to the place where Christ is to be born, in Bethlehem. And notice here, we see that Jesus could have easily been born in Nazareth, right? Because that's where his parents were from. But God arranged for him to be born in Bethlehem. And to give you a better idea of the where of this story, look at a map up here of it. Here's where we are here. Here's where the events took place right over here. Let me give us a close-up there. This is uh, modern-day Palestine here. And let's look at a map of first-century Palestine. Here we are. And uh, the arrow up top is Nazareth. It's where Joseph and Mary are from. And they make this trip all the way down to Bethlehem. And uh, it's about 70 to 80 miles on foot. Can you imagine that? And being nine months pregnant, ladies, had to have been a difficult, difficult journey. It's, it's estimated that it probably took about five or six days to make this journey. So they make this journey from Nazareth down to Bethlehem. And the reason why is because there is a, a census that's taking place. In, in those days, at times, people were required to report to a certain area to be registered for tax purposes. And like we said a moment ago, when looking at verses 1 and 2, Luke tells us Caesar Augustus issued this decree that, that men re return to the city of their ancestors to be registered. And we learn here, in this passage, that Joseph is from the house and the lineage of David, which is why he goes to David's town in Bethlehem. And that's where Jesus is born, which is another important detail in our story. The reason why this is an important detail, because in 2 Samuel 7, God promises David that one is going to rise up from his house and is going to come from his family who is going to rule forever. So Luke, by sharing that Jesus is from the house of David, born in the city of David, he's showing that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise that God made to David. This is also a direct fulfillment of the prophet Micah. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, written again hundreds of years before this event. Micah 5.2, in Micah 5.2, Micah prophesies that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. So Luke is showing us here, by telling us the birthplace of Jesus, he's showing us, folks, 
that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the one who has come to rule. He is God's forever king. He is the fulfillment of Micah 5. He is the one who's going to sit on the throne of David forever and ever. He is the fulfillment of this promise, Luke says. This baby born in Bethlehem, get this, he's the king. That's what Luke is emphasizing here by sharing, this, sharing with us these details. So that's the where of the story, the place of the story. Now let's focus on the who. Let's focus on the person of the story. Look at verses 6 and 7. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. So here we're introduced to the who of the story. The person of the Christmas story is the Lord Jesus. But notice the description of his birth here. It's very interesting. Though we said in the previous point that this baby born in a, in a barn in Bethlehem is the king. Notice where he's born. He's born in a barn. He's not born in glory, but in humility. Not in a palace of gold and silver, but in a barn with unclean animals. He's not clothed in silk and beautiful baby garments, but he's wrapped up in cloths that have been stripped and ripped and wrapped around him like a peasant. The king of all kings, the Lord of all creation, was born to a no-name family from Nazareth in a barn in Bethlehem. Folks, that's a very important detail in this story. Many of us, we read through this story each and every year, and we just gloss through verses 6 through 7 without a second glance. But the details here, folks, are very, very important. Luke, by explaining to us the manner in which Jesus is born, he gives us great insight, get this, into what Jesus has come to do. The more we learn about Jesus in this story, the more we learn about God and his gospel. Time and time again in here, I've shared with you in more ways than one that at the heart of the gospel, we see the great love of God for us in the way he humbles himself by humbling his son. A few months back, we're in John chapter 18 and 19. We saw this displayed at the cross, didn't we? We saw the great love of God for us and how he allowed his son to be tortured and humiliated through being scourged and crucified. But we also see this here in Luke's Christmas story as well. In this passage, we see how God has humbled himself by humbling his son, by sending him to earth for our sakes. This account here of Jesus' birth is a wonderful picture of the gospel. It's a wonderful reminder to us of the great lengths God has gone through to save us. Whatever it takes, God does. Whatever it costs, God pays. Wherever he has to go, God goes. Whatever he has to bear, he bears. Though we've rebelled against him, though we've chosen a piece of fruit over him, though we have preferred to worship ourselves in our own dreams rather than him, 
in order to rescue us, the very people who have rejected him, God plans for and allows his son to take an immeasurable step down for us. He sends him down to us. And Christ comes willingly. And Christ doesn't just take the form of a man, does he? He takes the form of a lowly man. He's born a Nazarene in a barn in Bethlehem. And he does it for us. He does it for us. And this is simply the beginning of what Christ endures, isn't it? His life begins in humility and it ends in humility. Everything he experiences in his life, from his birth to his death, he experienced in humility for us. Not because of his sin, because he was without sin, but because of our sin. Because of us. The application for us is simple, folks. There's many applications we can make here, but one that needs to be made is that we too need to be imitators of him in this way. Am I right? You know, the God who has humbled himself for us, he calls us to do the same, doesn't he? And when he does this, when he calls us to a humility, again, he's not calling us to do something which he himself has not already done. He's not calling us to do something that is inconsistent with his own character. He's done it. So the next time you don't feel like humbling yourself, the next time you struggle with, with, with pride and you're tempted to put yourself first, remember this. Remember, believers, how God has humbled himself by humbling his son. Remember the immeasurable step down our Lord has taken for us. Remember that the baby born to a no-name Nazarene family in a barn in Bethlehem is none other than the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So we've talked about the timing of the story, the place of the Christmas story, the person of the Christmas story. Now let's end by talking about the irony of the story. Look at verse 7 again. She, Mary, gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. Notice the great irony of the story here. Just a chapter over, the angel Gabriel appears to Mary and he says, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And here in chapter 2, you have the innkeepers telling her, sorry, there's no room for you here. Just a chapter over, you have Gabriel saying to Mary, you've been greatly favored by God. And your son is going to be great. And he's going to be called son of the most high. And here in chapter 2, you have people saying, sorry, don't have any room for you and your husband and your soon-to-be child. The best we've got is a cattle stall out back. And it's there in that cattle stall where this great one, the son of the most high, is born. There's some great irony in this story, isn't there? Highly favored one, great one, son of the most high, and cattle stall don't really fit together, do they? Being favored by God and staying in a stable and being son of the most high and born in a barn doesn't really seem to fit, does it? But for those of us 
who are familiar with God's redemption story, we understand the irony all too well, don't we? I mean, think about it. We really do. We know what it's like to read the words of the Lord where he says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you, and hear the doctor say it's cancer. There's nothing that can be done. We know what it's like to read about how much God loves us and how he'll never stop loving us and then have a husband or wife say to us, I don't love you anymore. We know all too well what it's like to hear God say, you're created in my image and are therefore very special to me and have a mother or father tell us you're worthless. You're nothing. We understand the irony of God's redemption story all too well, don't we? And there are, there are times when the circumstances in life seem to negate the blessings that God brings and the promises that he makes. There are many who think that difficult circumstances show that God's promises can't be true and therefore he cannot be trusted. If this is you, I, I, I hope you see this morning that over 2,000 years ago, before your difficulties were difficult, long before that thought ever entered into your head, God was showing that his power is displayed, his blessings remain, his promises hold true in the midst of the worst of circumstances. We learn as we look at the events surrounding Jesus' birth and all throughout his ministry, and especially in his death, that there is no circumstance where God's powers cannot be displayed. There's no circumstance where his promises are trumped and no situation where his blessings are undone. Believers, that should comfort you this morning. Maybe you're here this morning in the last half of this sermon really struck a chord with you. It hits home with you. Maybe you've experienced all sorts of tragedies in your life. You've lost loved ones who are very close to you or you've had a husband or wife leave you even though they made a vow to be by your side for better, for worse, no matter what. Maybe growing up you had a father or mother who failed to be the parent's they're supposed to be. And in a home where you're supposed to experience love and security, you experience pain and neglect and heartache. And that pain you felt from losing that loved one or, or that, that, that betrayal you felt from that spouse who left or the deep scars that you have from that abusive relationship with the parent is felt to this very day. Though you've moved on, you're still bitter to this very day because... Those wounds, they cut deep. I have an encouraging word I want to leave you with this morning. Though the world in which we live is broken, and as a result, we experience pain and suffering and, and, and sadness and heartache, and though human relationships are, are flawed in that those who are meant to love us the most often hurt us the most. Listen, I want you to get this. There is one who never fails us. There is one who offers us a relationship that is flawless. Though some of you have experienced great loss in your life, and you've had an ex 
husband, ex-wife, father, mother let you down and fail to be the husband, wife, father, mother they, they promised to be, there is one, folks, who is faithful in every way. There is one who brings true and lasting joy, who promises us a glorious future in Him, no matter the circumstances in the here and now. There is one who is true to His Word and who keeps His Word regardless. There is one who sticks closer than a brother. There is one who loves unconditionally and promises never to leave us nor forsake us. And the person I'm talking about, of course, is the Lord God. And He has created both you and me for Himself. And He tells us in His Word that if we will turn from our sin of rebellion and if we will trust in the person and work of His Son, we will be forgiven of sin and made right with Him and get to experience this flawless, faithful, unconditional, and eternal relationship with Him. If you're here this morning, you're severely bitter and deeply scarred by the things in your past, I invite you this morning... Start your Christmas off right by receiving the greatest gift that's ever been given, the gift of eternal life in Jesus. Let's pray.